First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Some people think of God as far away, too far to hear or care about what's going on in their lives. But God is near. He hears. He cares. He has moved into our neighborhood. And if you know him, he's moved into your heart. He's the God next door. Join us as we encounter him, our God next door. And let's discover together how God's presence means everything for God's people. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are here with us even now. You are the God next door that you want to speak to us. You want us to hear from you. Father, we ask that you would bind our wandering hearts to you. Because we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the God that we love. We pray today, Father, you would fix our eyes on your son Jesus, that we might see more of him, and we might trust you in everything. Lord, would you speak to every one of us now through your perfect word that you have given. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is the last week for us in this series called God Next Door, and we're going to be talking today about when God is not enough for God's people. You know, by this point in Samuel, the story of Samuel, the the people of God should have known that God was enough for them. He had proven that time and time again. And of course, we should know that also in our own lives, but, but here is the truth, and really this is the main idea of the message today. God is more than enough for us, but sometimes, sadly, we think that He isn't. And God is more than enough for us, but sometimes, sadly, we think that He isn't. And it wasn't just Israel that has been guilty of that. We can be guilty of that as well. Sometimes, even those of us who know Jesus as our Savior can forget that He is more than enough. And we start to think that we need something else or someone else to, to make us happy or to make us feel secure or to complete us or fulfill us or whatever the case may be. And that's why I think as we look at Israel today in chapter 7 and 8, it's really going to feel like in many ways we're looking in a mirror. Because we're going to see ourselves in the way that they act and in the decisions that they make in these chapters. As I said, we're looking at chapter 7 and 8 today. There is a gap of time that happens between chapter 7 and 8 in the book of Samuel. But I really believe that these two chapters are placed side by side in the book of Samuel because we are meant to compare them. Because in one of them, the people of God, really for the first time in this book, actually do what they're supposed to do. And they turn back to God and they seek after God with all of their heart. And then, though, as we turn to chapter 8, they turn back around and mess things up again. And doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that what we oftentimes do? Sometimes we get it. 
Sometimes we live like God is enough for us, and then we turn around and we miss it by a mile. But let's start where the story starts. Let's start with a positive, because sometimes we get it. Again, sometimes we understand that God is all that we need, that God and only God can satisfy our hearts. And friend, if you're here today and you've never come to a place where you've really understood that, where you really believe that, that God is enough for you, that only God can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, I pray that you would meet him in such a way today that you would never doubt that, that he is the one who can grip your heart. I know we may have some who are here for the first time today and have not been with us as we've walked through the chapters leading up to this. So just a, a quick recap of, of some of the ground that we've covered. If you remember back in chapter 4, the Israelites were battling against their enemies, the Philistines, and they thought it was a good idea to go and get the Ark of the Covenant uh, out of the tabernacle and bring it out to the battlefield because they thought that if they did that, it would kind of force God or manipulate God to cause them to win the battle, but it didn't work out that way. They lost that battle. The ark of God was captured by the Philistines. It was carried away into the Philistine territory. And then last week, uh, we saw really what is a pretty funny story in Scripture in chapters 5 and 6, where God puts an absolute beat down on all of the imaginary gods that the Philistines worshipped. Everywhere they took the Ark of the Covenant, uh, I mean, these statues were falling down, their heads were falling off, there were tumors and rats that were breaking out everywhere, and things were going so badly for the Philistines uh, that they came to a point where they said, we can't keep this Ark anymore. Uh, the God of Israel is too powerful. We need to send this ark back. And so in chapter 6, they send the ark back along uh, with a few parting gifts. Uh, altogether, the ark was only out of the nation of Israel for seven months until the people of Beth Shemesh looked up one day, and here was the ark of God coming back on a cart being pulled by a couple of cows. But then we read at the end of chapter 6 that the men of Beth Shemesh ended up treating the ark just as irreverently as the Philistines did. They actually opened up the lid of the ark and looked inside, which was forbidden in the law of God. And 70 of the men of that village died because of that. And so they end up doing the same thing that the Philistines did. They said, God is too holy. We, we can't keep this ark here. We need to send the ark away. And so they also send the ark away to a city called Kirjath-Jerim. And that's where the ark would stay uh, for 20 years or more until King David will come later in the story. And will take the ark from there and will bring it up to the city of Jerusalem. And so basically that's where we are in the story. The people of God have the ark back, but they're keeping the ark out on the fringes of the nation of Israel. And, and spiritually, it's almost like the people of God are just kind of stuck in neutral, like they're not going anywhere. Have you ever been there before? And when we come to chapter 7, though, of verse 3, Samuel shows up again. If you remember, Samuel was the little boy that was miraculously born to his mother Hannah after she prayed for him back in chapter 1. 
He was the boy who grew up in the tabernacle with Eli, serving the Lord from the time he was a child. And by the end of chapter 3, God had raised up Samuel as his prophet, his mouthpiece, through which he would speak his word to the entire nation of Israel. But then Samuel almost just kind of walks off the stage. We don't hear from him after the first verse of chapter 4. We don't hear from him all the way until we come to chapter 7. But when Samuel first came upon the scene, it was a, a sign of God's mercy and his grace. And so when he comes back on the scene here in chapter 7, it's a good sign for God's people that fresh grace from the Lord uh, is about to come to them. I think that the reason Samuel picks this particular moment to call the nation of Israel back to the Lord is because he senses that God is doing something in the people's hearts. If you look up in verse 2 of chapter 7, it, it says, So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time, and it was there 20 years. And notice this, All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The word lamented there means to mourn or even to seek after something. And that's what was going on in the hearts of the people. God was beginning to stir. They were beginning to mourn after the Lord. They were beginning to seek after the Lord and long for, for the Lord. And so Samuel senses that. He senses that the moment is right to call the entire nation to repent, and to call the nation back to God. And, and you know, that's really going to be the same for us. Any true turning back to the Lord has to begin with a desire in our hearts for more of God. You know, this past week, I had the chance to meet with some other pastors, and uh, David Youth, the pastor at First Baptist Orlando, came over and shared with us. And uh, he made this statement that really struck me. He said this, God will meet you at the level of your desire. God will meet you at the level of your desire. And even as he said that, I just felt that the Lord was really just speaking to my heart and saying, Scott, how, how badly do you want more of me? Are, are you content right now with how much of me that you know, how deep your relationship is with me at this moment, or, or do you want more of me? And I can tell you that I do want more of God in my life. I'd ask you to pray for me that God would give me a greater zeal for him than I've ever had in my life. And, you know, I really believe that's where it has to start with all of us. A greater zeal and longing for more of God. I believe God is asking all of that, us that question. How badly do we want to have more of God? Do, do we want him badly enough to be willing to cut into our sleep time so we can get up and spend more time with the Lord? Do we want him badly enough that we're willing to fast in order to seek God's presence in prayer? Do we want him badly enough, more of him, that we're willing to carve out more time to pray with our families and to pray with our church family in order to seek after God? Or are we content? Are we complacent with how much of God that we have right now? And Samuel sensed that Israel wanted more of God. And so in verse 3, he says this to them. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, 
Then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel says if you, if you really want to seek after God, if you're really serious about returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then it, then it has to go deeper than just lamenting for him. It has to go deeper than a bunch of emotions. Repentance can start with tears, but it cannot end with tears. It has to go beyond tears. It has to result in some real changes in our lives. If we really want more of God in our lives, then first off, according to Samuel's words here, let's, let's get rid of every other God that we have been worshiping. Get rid of every other God that we have been worshiping. Again, in verse 3, he says, Put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you. And in verse 4, it says that the people listen, that they put away the bales, they put away the asterisks, who are the chief gods that the Canaanites around them worship. And Asherah was the goddess, the Canaanite goddess of love and war and fertility. And Baal was her male counterpart. And the people of God got swept up in the false worship of these false gods, including all of the sexual perversion that was involved in the worship that went on of these Canaanite deities. And Samuel says, you know what? If you're really serious about following the Lord, if you're really serious about turning back to Him, then you need to get rid of every other god that you have been worshiping except for the Lord. And I think it's easy for us to read that. And to think, well, we don't have a problem with that. You know, we don't have any statues in our rooms. We don't have anything that we're bowing down to. We don't worship any false gods. But, but an idol doesn't have to be a statue. An idol can be anything in our lives that we have begun to give a weight to or an importance to that really should only belong to the Lord. An idol can be a person. We can make an idol out of our spouse. We can make an idol out of our children. We can make an idol out of the longing or the dream of a spouse. We can make an idol out of sports. We can make an idol out of work or success. We can make an idol out of entertainment. We can make an idol out of the dream of retirement and what that will be like or a thousand other things. Friend, what idol is God saying to you and to me has to go if we're really serious about turning to the Lord and seeking Him with all of our hearts. That's what Samuel tells them first, to put away every other God. And then in the middle of verse 3, he says, and prepare your hearts for the Lord. So let's do that also. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord. And I thought about what that really means to prepare our hearts for him. And the Lord brought this verse to my mind, Hosea 10, verse 12. It says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness down upon you. You know, for a farmer to get his land ready, he has to first go out and break up the hard ground. He has to till the soil before it's ready to plant the seed. And, and Christian, God wants to meet with you. God, God wants to show you more of himself. But it starts with you and I being willing to break up the hard places in our hearts. We have to prepare our hearts for the Lord. And that means that whatever God reveals to us to be sin in our life, we have to be willing to let go of it. 
We have to be willing to confess it and to turn away from it. And also, whatever God would show us in our life that we're leaving undone, things that he wants us to be doing that we're not doing, we need to start doing them without delay. We need to prepare our hearts to meet the Lord. And then finally, Samuel says, serve the Lord only. Let's do that. Let's serve the Lord only. That means not only do we get rid of every other God, but we serve the true and the living God with all of our hearts. So let's worship him and let's live for him and let's serve him and let's tell other people about him. And let's say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so more or less, verse 3 is like Samuel's spiritual prescription for the condition that Israel had. He said, if you really want to turn back to the Lord like you say you do, then here's how you can do it. In verse 4, it says that they did exactly as he says. That they put their gods away, that they served the Lord only. They were preparing their hearts to meet with him. And so in verse 5, kind of as the culmination of of what God was already doing in their hearts, Samuel calls uh, all the people together for a great uh, festival at the city of Mitzvah. Verse 6 describes what happens there. It's almost like a little revival was breaking out there. The people of God were praying and they were fasting and the people weren't sugarcoating it. They were just saying, we have sinned against the Lord and they were seeking God's forgiveness. Maybe that's what we need to do today. To confess our sin to God and to seek his forgiveness. We don't know what this symbol was of Samuel pouring water out on the ground as it says in verse 6. A lot of different theories about that. I I tend to believe that it was a picture of the forgiveness of God of the people's sins. That when we come to God with our sin and we confess it, that He washes it and He cleanses it. And that's what He does with us. When we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. For the first time in a long time, the people of God were right with God. And then in verses 7 through 11, we read about another battle with the Philistines. The Philistines saw all of the Israelites gathering together in one city, and they thought, "Uh uh-oh, these guys are getting ready for war. And so they said, we better beat them to the punch. And so they start to rally their troops for battle, and the Israelites see that, and the text says they become fearful. They're scared. Maybe they remember what happened the last time, the last couple of times that they had fought the Philistines and how they got it handed to them. But the text says that they didn't turn and run. They didn't go and get the ark again. They didn't try to manipulate God. They didn't depend on their own resources. Instead, they turned to God in desperate prayer. And they said to Samuel, Samuel, don't stop praying for us that the Lord would deliver us. They turned to God. And because they turned to God, this battle went drastically differently than every other battle that we've read about in Samuel so far. In this battle, it says that the Lord literally thundered down upon the enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines. Just as Hannah had prayed God would back in chapter 2, God thundered upon their enemies. They sought the Lord. And the Lord gave them the victory. I love what Samuel does down in verse 12. After this battle is over, he takes a stone and he sets it up as a monument to their victory. And he calls the name of this stone Ebenezer. Ebenezer, which means a stone of help. And he says this, this far the Lord has helped us. You know, earlier in our service we sang the song, Come Thou Fount 
of every blessing. And many times when we will sing that song, we might leave out uh, the words about the Ebenezer because nobody knows what an Ebenezer is. Right? You hear Ebenezer and you see and you think, what is this, the Christmas carol? Is this Ebenezer Scrooge? What, what are we singing about right here? But now we do know what this is about. Because this is the story where that word Ebenezer comes from. And so when we sing those lyrics in that song, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy grace I've come. This is what Samuel said that day. What a beautiful truth this is for every Christian in this room. And every one of us could put a stone down in our front yard today and say, This is my Ebenezer because, God, it's because of your grace that I've even gotten to this point. And God, because by your grace I've gotten to this point, God, by your grace I'm going to get all the way home. And you know, as Christians, we don't have to wonder about what our Ebenezer is, what our monument is to how far God will help us. Our Ebenezer is the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we can say those words, this far God has helped me. And if God has helped me this far, I don't know what is going on in your life today. I don't know what it is right now that you feel like, I don't think I can get through this. I don't know how I can get beyond this. I don't know what I'm going to do with this situation. I pray today that if that is you, that you would raise up your cross and your heart, that you would raise up your Ebenezer and you would say, this far God has helped me. And if God has helped me this far, God will help me all the way home. Now, we won't spend long here at the end of chapter 7, but it gives us a little snapshot of how life was in Israel under Samuel's godly leadership. Basically, things were good. The people of God had peace at least for a little while, with their enemies. They were even able to reclaim some of the land that the Philistines had taken away. And in verse 16, it says that Samuel every year would travel around on a little circuit to three major cities where he would meet with the people and and judge the people and settle disputes. And of course, as a prophet of God, he would point the people of God to the Lord everywhere that he went. This was a happy time in Israel's history. Finally, They had a godly leader to lead them. But those good times would not last for long. Because sometimes we get it. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we forget that God is enough. And we start looking for something else. And that is what Israel does in chapter 8. Now we don't know how much time passed between chapter 7 and chapter 8. But we do know from verse 1 that now Samuel is an old man. And he has appointed his two sons as deputy judges down in the far south of the nation of Israel in a city called Beersheba. But look at what it says in verse 3 about Samuel's sons. It says, But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes. And they perverted justice. You know, this should remind us of the man that Samuel grew up with in the tabernacle, Eli, whose two sons also did not follow in their father's ways. Eli's sons were corrupt, and now we read that Samuel's sons were also corrupt, that his sons had disqualified themselves, and they disqualified themselves because they were taking bribes. They were lining their own pockets. They cared more about money than they cared about justice. And apparently the nation of Israel knew it. And so in verses 4 and 5, the elders of Israel come to Ramah. They come to, to Samuel's hometown. 
And in essence, what they say to him is, is very clear and very to the point. They don't beat around the bush. They basically say, number one, Samuel, you're old. And number two, Samuel, your sons are just the worst. And so number three, make us a king. And that was their request in verse five. Make us a king. That's what we need, Samuel. Israel needs a king because you're not going to be around forever. And your sons obviously aren't going to be able to take your place. And so what we need is a king like all the nations that are around us. And to say that Samuel did not approve of this request is to put it mildly. Look at verse 6. It says, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. When it says that it displeased him there, the word literally means it was evil in his sight. He thought it was an evil idea. Now, to be fair, God, all the way back in his law, in the book of Deuteronomy, had said that one day Israel is going to want a king. Look at this with me, Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So again, God knew that one day they were going to ask for a king, and God essentially here approves of that request. And so the problem in 1 Samuel 8 is not just the fact that they're asking for a king. The problem is what's going on in their heart. The problem is their motive in asking for a king. And that comes out in the next few verses. Even though Samuel doesn't agree with this direction, he takes it to the Lord in prayer. That's a good example for all of us right there. And here's what God says to him, starting in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So in verse 7, God tells Samuel to listen to the people, to heed their voice, to give them a king. But also God says to Samuel, Samuel, once you not, not take this as a personal rejection, that they're not really rejecting you, they're really rejecting me. They're really saying, I don't want God to be my king. I want to have a human king. And in verse 8, he says, Samuel, this really shouldn't surprise you because this is what Israel has been doing ever since I rescued them from Egypt. That they have been bucking against my authority. They have been bucking against my kingship ever since I redeemed them. And so again, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me. But again, it isn't just ancient Israel that is guilty of doing that. We still do that today. We still forget today that the Lord is enough. In our lives. And we can know that we're doing that. And we can know that we're forgetting that the Lord is enough when we're doing the things that they're doing here. First off, we can know we're doing that when we start shifting our trust to weak substitutes. 
When we start to, to shift our trust away from the Lord to weak and pale substitutes, God had shown his people over and over again that he was fully capable of rescuing them, of providing for them, of, of defeating their enemies. He had shown that over and over again, and yet they were saying, no, but God, you know, you're good and all, but, you know, we want a human king also. And the fact that they were even asking that shows that they didn't really trust God to take care of him. They weren't kicking God out entirely. They still wanted him to be there. They still wanted him to be just a prayer away, but they also wanted a human king that they could touch and feel and maybe even if they had to control. Of course, we know that any human king, and especially the one they were about to get in chapter 9, is a weak and cheap substitute for God himself. But at the time, they didn't see it that way. They thought that's what they needed. And I'm, I'm afraid that we're like that a lot of times as well, that as believers, there are times when we, we really, what we want God to be is we kind of want God to be our, our safety net. You know, we want him to be there as a safety net behind us, but in the day-to-day realities and difficulties of life, we really want something else to be able to hang on to, something else to be able to trust in. And so as believers, we don't entirely reject God like an unbeliever would. We want him to still be in our life. We want him to save our souls, but we also don't fully trust him. In high school, my wife, Megan, worked at a a rock climbing gym called On the Edge. That was her job all through high school. I've never really been much into rock climbing, but I did it a few times with her, and our kids have gotten into it a little bit as well. And you know, in rock climbing, of course, you're, you're hooked up, at least when you're doing it safely, you're hooked up to a, a, a rope, and you have, you have that there. But also, of course, you're hanging onto the wall. You're hanging onto the, the hand grips and the foot grips, and you're climbing up the wall and climbing down the wall, and the rope is there to kind of catch you if you lose your grip and if you fall. That's rock climbing. But rappelling is something entirely different. In, in, in rappelling, you're not really hanging on to the wall at all, but actually you're leaning back on the rope to the point that you're actually parallel to the ground and perpendicular to the rock. And you're trusting all of your weight on that rope to hold you up as you walk down the mountain. There's a difference between rappelling and rock climbing. And when it comes to faith, I think we're a lot more comfortable with rock climbing than we are with rappelling. You know, we want God to be there like a safety rope to hold us up, but we also want to have something to hold on to. We also want to be able to still grip the wall and just kind of have God there as a safety net to catch us if we fall, but we're really not willing to throw all our weight back on God and to depend on God and God alone to hold us up. We're really not sure that God's enough. We think we need God plus something else. And we say, God, I'm glad you're there. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad you, you saved me and all, but I also would kind of like a little bit more money in the bank account so I know that, you know, my ends are going to meet. Say, God, I'm, I'm glad that you're there, but I really want to be able to advance in my career, and, and really that's, that's what I need to happen in my life. And God, you know, I'm glad you're there, but I'm really just, I don't feel that I'm going to be fulfilled until I'm, I'm married. I just, I just need that to happen in my life. And, and so we, we are really not depending on the Lord. We're depending on God plus these other things that we think we need. And 
God calls that, according to this passage, a rejection of him. Now, we would be quick to say, God, I'm not rejecting you. I don't, I don't want to get rid of you. I still want you to be here. But God would say, no, that's what Israel did. And it's a rejection when you don't think that I'm really enough for you. When you think you need something else. And you know, it may be a little confusing to us. You know, if, if, if why what they were doing was so wrong in asking for a king, then why did God say yes? Right? Clearly, God says that they have the wrong heart motive. They're not asking for the right thing in the right way. And so why does God acquiesce? Why does God say yes and tell Samuel, against Samuel's better judgment, to go ahead and give them a king? Why does God do that? Here, here's the principle we need to take to heart today. Sometimes, sometimes God lets us have what we want to show us that what we think we want isn't what we really want. Sometimes God lets us have what we want to show us that what we think we want isn't what we really want, and that's what he's doing here. He's giving the people of God a king so that they will learn that a human king is not really what they wanted. <laughs> they will learn that what they really want and what they really need is God himself. But they had to learn that the hard way, and sometimes so do we. Sometimes God lets us have what we want. You know, we want a promotion so badly. We want to, want to get to that dream job so badly. And when we finally get there, we realize that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And in fact, we're just more stressed out than we've ever been before. Sometimes we so badly just think if we can just meet Mr. Right, if we can just meet Mrs. Right, then everything will be right. And then we get married and we realize that while marriage is a blessing, it isn't easy either and it comes with its own set of challenges and and we realize that you know what if I wasn't able to be happy before marriage then I'm not going to be able to be happy in marriage because my spouse cannot be that rope that holds me up he's he's not able to do that they weren't created to do that sometimes we have to learn the hard way what God is trying to tell us here in his word that only he is really enough only he is enough to lean all of our weight back on and depend on him to hold us up. But we can know that we're forgetting that. And we're shifting our trust to weak substitutes. We can also know we're forgetting that when we're resistant to even hearing and listening to the truth. Because in verse 9, God tells Samuel, go ahead and give them a king, but warn them. Tell them everything that this king is going to do to them. And so Samuel does that. Look in verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his his servants and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself and the Lord will not hear you in that day I love that last verse God is basically saying listen don't come crying to me when you find out that it is exactly like I told you it was going to be 
You know, if I had to summarize everything that Samuel is saying to the people in this whole list of warnings, it really just boils down to the word take. You so badly want to have this king, but what you don't don't realize is this king, all he's going to do is take, take, take. Do you see how many times the word take shows up? In verse 11, he says, this king will take your sons from you. In verse 13, he says, this king will take your daughters. In verse 14, he says, this king will take the best of your fields. The next verse, he says, he will take a tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he says, he'll take your servants. Verse 17, he says, he'll take a tenth of your sheep. It's take, take, take. He says, this is what your king is going to do to you. And you would think that after hearing all of this, that the people of God would say, you know, we were just kidding, Samuel, about that. We really don't want a king. But that's not what they do. Look at verses 19 and 20. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The text says that they refused to obey Samuel's voice. You can hear their will in that, can't you? No, we will do this. And we don't care what you say about it. We don't care what anybody else says about it. And sometimes we can get to that place too where we feel like we want something so badly and we need something so badly that it doesn't matter what anybody else says. And maybe you're, right now, you have your mind just set on doing something that is against God's word. And every Christian in your life is telling you you're going the wrong way. Maybe you've got Christian parents who are saying, you're going the wrong way. Maybe you've got Christian friends, and every time you meet with them for coffee, and you're hoping that one of them will just affirm what you want to do, and every single one of them is saying, no, you're going the wrong way. You think you're going to find life there. You think you're going to find blessing there, but you're not. And they're warning you, and yet you're sticking your fingers in your ears and saying, no, but I will do what I want. That is not the path to blessing and peace and joy. It is a path to destruction. But we can know whenever we start to do that that we have forgotten that God is the only one who is really enough. I really think the key reason why they were so bent on having a king is there in verse 20. It says that we also may be like all the nations. Like all the nations. That same phrase showed up back in verse 5. When they first asked Samuel, give us a king that we may be like the nations. They were surrounded by Canaanite city-states that all had kings leading them. So they had seen that and they said, you know, we want that. We want to have a, a human king. Somebody who can be out in front of our army. Somebody who can rally the troops. Somebody who can lead us out into to battle. That's, that's really what we need. Now, what was the problem with that? What's the problem with them wanting to be like all the nations? The problem is that from the very beginning, God had told Israel, you're not like all the nations. God had told Israel, you're different. In Exodus, he said, you are my special people. My chosen people. In Leviticus, he said, I want you to be holy as I am holy. And the word holy also means to be set apart. To be Literally, it means to be different. God was saying, you be different because I'm different. And he didn't just say that to Israel. He said that to us. He said that to the church, that we need to be holy. We need to be different as he is different. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ said he wants us to be in the world, but he doesn't want us to be of the world. We're called to be different. 
And so like Israel Church, we can know that we've forgotten our God is enough when we are ashamed to be different. And sometimes I'm afraid we get there. We get to a place where we say, you know, God, I know you've called me to be holy, but God, I'd kind of rather be like them. And I really just kind of want to blend in because, God, I'm embarrassed to have a different definition of success than the world that works around me every day. And God, I, I, I'm embarrassed that, that I have to speak in this holy way, in this pure way, and use pure humor when nobody that I work with does that. And God, it's, it's embarrassing that, that I have this standard of, of sexual purity before marriage and sexual purity in marriage when I live in a culture that doesn't agree with any of that. And, and I'm just embarrassed by that. God, I'm, just, I'm embarrassed to be different. I don't want to be different. I want to be the same. And that's where we need to hear the words of Paul ringing in our ears from Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Christian, don't be ashamed to be different. Be ashamed if you're not different. Because we are a new people. And we've been raised to a new life in Jesus Christ. Peter said, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people who have been called to proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and called us into his marvelous light. The Israelites didn't want to be different. They wanted to blend in. They wanted so badly to have a king like all the nations around them. And so in verse 21, it says, Samuel heard all these words of the people. He repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go back to his city. Samuel sent them home. And waited until the Lord showed him the man that he had chosen to be king. And next week, we will meet him. A man who is literally head and shoulders taller than everyone else. But in the end, he would turn out to not be the king that they were looking for. And yet it's just amazing to me that we have such a marvelous God. That he's able to take an ill-advised wrongly motivated request for a king that Israel was demanding. And he's able to take that request and he's able to work that into his plan of redemption and salvation. And he's able one day to bring us through the line of the kings of Israel, the king that we were looking for, King Jesus. You know, every story in the Bible is designed to point us to Jesus Christ because it's in Jesus Christ that we will be saved. And so just as we close, very quickly, I want us to see two pictures of Jesus in this story. We kind of glossed over it in chapter 7, but do you remember what Samuel was doing when Israel won that battle against the Philistines? Look, look back in chapter 7, verse 9. It says, Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, Listen, now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon them. Do you see that? As Samuel was offering a lamb, God gave his people 
the victory. Church, don't miss this. Where is Jesus in this story? He is the lamb whose death has won our victory. Their victory was won as a lamb was being slaughtered and church, so was ours. When Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life for us on the cross, he won the victory. And it wasn't just a victory over the Philistines. It was a victory over far more serious enemies than that. It was a victory over death. It was a victory over sin. It was a victory over Satan. And if we will turn to him and trust in him, then we will find our victory right there at the cross where our lamb was slaughtered for our souls. You know, there's another place where I see Jesus in this story in chapter 8. We talked about how Samuel warned the people about this king that they wanted so badly. We saw how he told them that once you get that human king, that he's just going to take, take, take. What a contrast that is with our great king. Because friends, Jesus is not a king who came to take, take, take. But Jesus is a king who came to give, give, give. Every king Israel ever had was in some ways a disappointment. Even their best kings. Even King David and King Solomon weren't perfect. They still took things that did not belong to them. Only in King Jesus do we find a king who didn't come to take, but who came to give. Who came to give his love. Who came to give us purpose. Who came to give us his life. So that we could find life in him. And that's what he told us he came to do. In Mark chapter 10, we read this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friend, have you met this King? Let's pray together. Father, we praise you today that you have sent us a King That is so amazing. That is so wonderful. That is so gracious. A king who did not come to be served, but a king who came to serve. A king who came to give his life away for us. And God, I pray for anyone in this room who hasn't met King Jesus in a personal way. Maybe they know about him, but they couldn't say today with certainty that they know him. God, I pray today would be the day of salvation for someone in this room. That they would come broken before you, willing to say, I've sinned against the Lord like the Israelites did. I haven't lived the way you wanted me to live. I haven't treated people the way you've called me to treat people. God, I've sinned against you and I know it. But God, I also believe and know that you sent your son Jesus to die in my place to pay for all of my sins with his blood. And I believe he rose again on the third day, that first Easter. God, I pray that you would reach down by your grace and save someone, even now. Father, I pray for your church in this place as well. Lord, help us to truly believe that you are enough. Help us today, Father, to raise our Ebenezer, to say this far you have helped me and because you've helped me this far I know you'll get me home 
Help us to lean back and throw all our weight, God, upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.